Techfield Place podcast. I'm Lucy Hislop, curator of this eclectic programme of year-round events. A gentle Georgian home in Hampshire with 430 acres of woodland, lakes and gardens, Heckfield has always been a place to bring interesting and interested people together. Continuing this legacy, the Assembly calls on curious minds with a focus on looking forward and on our relationship with nature. Each episode features an edited conversation with our guests. This episode sees Sky Gingell, Spring Restaurant Chef and our Culinary Director, Darina Allen, owner of the internationally renowned Ballymaloo Cookery School, and Jordan Burke, chef and author who trained at the Ballymaloo Cookery School. From regenerative farming, gluts and top-down legislation to creating a delicious revolution, tuck in. Welcome to the assembly here at Heckfield Place. Uh, I'm Jordan Burke and I have the absolute pleasure of being able to spend the next hour chatting away to these two incredible women. Um, as was said previously, Sky Gingell, Culinary Director here and Spring in uh, London. And of course, we're delighted to have Darina Allen, the <laughs> best known uh, Irish uh, cookery writer, chef, campaigner, um, best-selling author. Uh, there's not a whole lot you haven't done when it comes to food uh, over your career. So it's an absolute <laughs> delight to be here with you both, not least because it was at the Ballymaloo Cookery School that I trained and where I first met Sky and where I first was offered my first job. Uh, so it kind of feels like it's come full circle. Um, but to dive straight in, congratulations are in order because last month was the publication of your 19th cookbook. I mean, 19 Who needs another Doreen Allen cookbook? But anyway. I mean, I did think, like, at 17 cookbooks or 18 cookbooks, did you think... Actually, do you know something? I'm exhausted. I'm not going to bother writing another one. No, or is there always a drive? No, I've more I want to do before I hang up my apron. But you write them in longhand, don't you? Oh, no. Yes, I, I do. All my books are still written in longhand. How do you bed? know that? I'm in bed. Yeah. It's true. I have, somehow or other, I have to have my feet up to write. Uh, and and then, it, then it comes flowing out. And this one, one pot feeds all. Tell us a little bit one about One pot that. feeds all. Well, basically, it's... Well, you know... I don't know why it's taken me so long to write this book, actually, because in a way it's been bubbling away in my self-conscious for several years because we've been doing, for about the last four or five years at the cooking school, we've been doing a one-pot wonders course. It's kind of a bit of a, a funny name. But anyway, it's always totally full. And one can see everybody nowadays with everything getting so more and more frenetic. Everybody's so busy and you know, trying to dash home through the traffic, you know, grab a couple of the kids from the crèche or something, you know, dash into a supermarket, try and put a pot, something delicious on the table. And, and you know, it's really impossible to keep all those balls in the air. And I dedicated this book, actually, to all the heroic young couples who are sort of trying to keep all the balls in the air. Mm. And I hope that... Uh, because this is sort of a, a food that can be done in one pot, one roasting tin, one baking tray, one tray bake. I hate that word, but anyway, there are lots <laughs> of good things you can do as a tray bake. And hopefully it'll be part of a solution for the many, many people who really want to put something delicious and know how important it is to try and 
You see, I'm the eldest of nine children and I was brought up with a mother who absolutely loved to cook and needless to say, she just looked after us and, and when it was time, when, you know, they were finished from cooking one meal, it was time to start another almost. So, but she, the strong message from mummy always was, well, if we don't put the effort into the food on the table or whatever, uh, we'll give it to the doctor or the chemist. Not that we want to do doctors <laughs> and chemists out of any business, but I think they're busy enough. So I was always brought up with this thing as you were, that, you know, the food was the thing that kept you healthy. The food is your medicine. Mm. And so anyway, it's all tied up in that. Hopefully there are some things that... Uh, uh, that people will love and find. I kept thinking, oh, I have to put this in, I have to put this in. And my publisher's always saying, as your publishers do, only that's it, 100 recipes. Well, that can be book it. number 20, as if you well, didn't have enough. Uh, well, you know. Nice even number. <laughs> well, I've already started um, on, on 20. <laughs> <laughs> of course you have. Well, like, that's a sort of a nice even number, though, yeah. isn't it? But the next one, actually, as a, the, uh, and, and that, let's leave the books after this, but basically is, you know, the, the working title is, 50 recipes that no kid should be allowed to leave school without being able mm. to do. Mm. And I want to get, I, I'm, I'm sure it's probably the same over here, where the whole emphasis in education is on the STEM subjects. And of course, science and maths and everything is incredibly important. Mm. But I want to see cooking, <laughs> practical cooking, re-embedded in the school curriculum. And literally, at leaving cert at A-levels, that no child, it's like in Finland, the boys, the girls, everybody, uh, able, allowed to leave school before they actually can cook and have the life skills to feed themselves mm. properly. Yeah. yeah. I'd love mm. to come back to that as well, actually. There's a, a quote in your 16th cookbook. <laughs> He's done his research. Um, it's, it was just curious. I, I because can't was, remember what was my 16th cookbook. Yeah, I was going to well quiz done. you on it. Which one is it? Uh, <laughs> yes. I was curious, though, because it kind of sums up everything that you're both about. Um, it's in your book, Grow, Cook, Nourish, just in case you'd forgotten, Darina. It's a quote from Eve Balfour. She's the founder of the Soil Association. And she said, the health of soil, plant, animal and man is one and indivisible. It's a, I mean, I'll just say it again. The health of soil, plant, animal and man is one and indivisible. It's such a simple statement, but mm. it seems like despite the simplicity of it, we find it quite difficult to reconcile ourselves with that basic mm. Uh, understanding of how we should be eating. Why? Why do you think that is? Um, well, <laughs> you, we That's both feel the same question, about this. It's it? all about yeah. the soil. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Why is it? I mean, it's such a big problem, isn't it? That's what I always see. I see everything as um, it's all kind of. It's like one big knitting knot that we've kind of got ourselves into, and it's very hard to find where the thread is or where mm. the beginning mm. was. And I think it's. Um, I mean, it, it's what you said. I mean, healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people, as yeah. we all yeah. know that. And um, and I think that we have separated ourselves and divorced ourselves so much from um, real food, and um, mm. that I don't think we really even understand what it yeah. is anymore. A lot of the time, yeah. and. Um, I mean, we've talked, we, we had a kind of crash course at breakfast this morning just sort yeah. of talking about it. And I think we, we feel very, um, you know, we, we've, we feel the same. I mean, I think the health of our health depends on the health of the planet. And of the soil, mm. yeah. Yeah, totally. and of the soil and, um, and of the planet in general. You know, we, we can't divorce ourselves mm. from it. We are part of it. And, uh, um, and I think we're both really passionate about, I mean, firstly, good food, grown in good, clean soil, totally. tastes yeah. beautiful and completely different. 
but I also think it's it it's it's um it's it's an I, I don't want to sound dramatic, but I do think that there's a sense of urgency. We oh have a lot of God, work to do, and um, yeah. mm. we need to move yeah. fast, fast. And yeah, back in the and, was it the seventies that you, when you were first at Ballymaloo House, and you were instrumental in changing it because it's the the Ballymaloo Cookery School is on an organic farm, one of the only cookery schools in the world on an organic farm. But that well, you were it's instrumental. Well, not in, the only one in, in the world on an organic farm, yeah. but it's a. Uh, the, the school is on, in the middle of a 100-acre organic farm, mm. so I think that may be... Um, a big organic uh, farm. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and we're so fortunate that, um, you know, our whole mission as organic farmers is to b continue to build up the fertility of the soil because, just as Guy says, our health totally depends. I mean, on the first day of the 12-week course, I I'm sure you may or may not remember this, but we do, these, we do three 12-week full-on gastro boot camp certificate courses every year and on the first morning the students are, have come from all over the world partly actually or mostly now because it's an on-farm cooking school and because they can see how the food is produced literally from now there's a term for it the farm to the fork and all of that but the first thing I do on the first morning is introduce the students to the gardeners and then I uh, and the farm manager and I say to them this is Eileen who grew those carrots and it took her three months to grow those carrots and don't you dare boil the hell out of them <laughs> into the kitchen and, and then I go out and uh, onto the into out, out of the onto steps out into the fruit garden and they're all gathered around you know first day everybody feeling you know what's coming and all the rest of it and then I run my hands to have a wheelbarrow full of soil and in fact it's humus and and I run my hands through the soil and I say remember this is where it all starts in the good earth you know this is we're all totally dependent on these four or five inches of soil around the world for our very survival our existence and they're all looking at me thinking oh my god didn't say anything about this in the brochure <laughs> some aged hippie on a mission or something and but I have to shock them I don't know whether you remember that on the first morning and then shock them out of thinking that food is something that comes wrapped in plastic off a supermarket shelf and to think about how the food is produced and where it comes from the breed the feed and all of that and then we go down to the greenhouses right down through the farm the greenhouses past the pigs and the chickens and all the rest of it and the first thing they do is we show them how to sow a seed and then we give them a little plant and plant they plant it into the Ours ground. Ours was corn on the cob. Was it? Well yeah. done. I, then I know what course you're on, you're on a summer course <laughs> yeah. and uh, with a little lollipop stick, it's like kindergarten with a name on it yeah. and then plant it into the ground and then they watch that growing for the next three months and by the end of the course, literally the last couple of days, those corns, those cobs are ready to be harvested and I think in many ways that's one of the most important lessons we do on the mm. whole thing because it, it really makes people realize how long it takes to grow something and you know it, it really also brings to life the 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 actual people talk about um, you know food security and you think well what's that but i can tell you when you realize that it takes three months to get to actually grow something you realize how and how quickly mm. we could not you can't spirit food onto a shelf if there's something happens so and then they want to hug a farmer every mm. time they see one and it, people don't complain about the price of food anymore when they realize how long yeah. It takes to grow something because you it's a big work, lesson sky works with fernvero a biodynamic farm and it, it just because of the way the industrial farming and agricultural practices have developed and they're commonplace now it, it, it can be a bit depressing looking looking at it now is there a way to combat it how can we do that but someone like fernvero seems to be doing it very well 
I think, um, I think definitely uh, the answer, I think a lot of the answer lies in regenerative agriculture farming. and mm. farming. Definitely um, returning to kind of smaller farms, truly biodiverse farms, which means that they, I mean, it's a, uh, it's a depressing thing, but if, if you look at America, for example, it's largely a monoculture. So it grows three main mm. crops, sorghum, soy, mm. and sorghum, soy, corn. and corn. corn. Mm. Yeah, for animal feed, largely, most of them, or for trans, mm. it's not to eat corn on the cob like you planted. Mm. And uh, what that has done is it's depleted the soil terribly of nutrients. And mm. also, uh, you know, you have this industrialized fertilizer on the land and there's very little biodiversity mm. um, anymore. And so I do feel really strongly. And that was the reason that we, uh, when I opened Spring, I, you know, we worked at Petersham mm. together and we were very close to, my all my inspiration came from what was around me. I'm not somebody who can sit in a dark room and write a menu. Mm. I need to kind of see something and be inspired. And actually, by the way, I do have to say, when you were just talking about uh, over the years um, in the in the different kitchens that I've had, I've probably had passed through probably about 35 Ballymaloo students and Darina's always amazing and um, do you remember or Rory used to do it too there's someone I really think that you might like which was really lovely and if there was any student that you really felt you know you'd often sometimes recommend to us but the thing was uh, everybody came they come with a real passion for produce and a mm -hmm. real appreciation of, mm -hmm. and I do actually, when you said that about planting, I think that is the single most important thing mm. you probably ever do. And mm. when I was a little girl, we had a vegetable garden in our kindergarten and we grew carrots and that was the first thing we did in the start mm. of term. And I remember growing it and feeling so proud of it and like taking it home and I like really achieved something. And, uh, and Alice Waters, who's another really wonderful, incredibly inspiring a woman in cook. food, mm. cook. Uh, she always says that, you know, we can't just interrupt you and give you good food without you under... It has to start with planting mm. of the yeah. seed. Mm. And I think it's that connection mm. that once you make it is... Yeah. Because you really do... I, just a really quick um, story which sounds, you know, we're talking about the true cost of food um, and food is too cheap. Mm. I, and I'm going to be out there and say it, you know, mm. in the 1950s, we probably spent about, apparently each house spent about 30% of their monthly income on food. We now spend under 11%. When Jane Scotter, who's the, um, she's also um, worked on the, we're in the process of um, uh, converting this farm to a biodynamic farm and we'll have biodynamic status in 2021 and Jane's come on and done um, really helped us in another wonderful mm. biodynamic farmer called Tom Petherick that also works at Ballymaloo actually um, but when we started working with her you know I knew it was going to be more expensive and I, I, I wanted to pay that but the first kilo of rocket that came in was 120 pounds on the bill and I was like, holy hell, like I could ring up any supplier at 11 o'clock at night and yeah. I'd probably get a bunch of rocket from Italy for about probably £2.20, depending like mm. on the time of year. So I picked up the phone to her and I was like, Jane, hang on, like I, I, I really love you and I think what you do is marvellous. <laughs> but like that is just like, and actually um, as over the year, and she was like, oh, well, I just didn't really know how to price it. And so anyway, um, but in the time that I've got to know her and spent time at the farm and I've really 
you know, the thing is, you plant the seed, you propagate it in the, gl um, mm. the glass house, so you, so you nurture it, and it's in a tiny little pot, and it's got to sit there for maybe six weeks and grow and shoot, and then when it's ready, you have to take it and dig a hole and bury it in the garden, and then you have to um, weed it and water it and weed it and water it and mm. weed it and water it, and then you harvest it, you lay it perfectly, and you drive it down. Mm. It's probably two, three months' work, mm. like you were talking about the carrot. Depends on the idea, yeah. By the hour, you're probably earning 20, 30p. You know, the truth, the true cost of that food mm. probably is mm. something around yeah. there. And obviously, I'm not suggesting that we all start spending 120 pounds on a kilo of rocket. A kilo of rocket is actually quite a lot, though. It's <laughs> like as that. Yeah. It's quite light just to chew you up. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bunch. It's a big, um, big but yeah, that box, bag of but, it, yeah. But actually, I don't think we really, really understand the true cost of good, clean food. Mm, and yeah. it would be really wonderful if we could reprioritize somehow. Mm. Alice, who's, you know, just say, I mean, she always talks about a revolution and she always talks about having a delicious revolution. revolution. Yes. And I think that's really the answer yeah. through deliciousness. Yeah. Um, I hope to. You know, the point you make about that we've all uh, come to um, imagine, or not imagine, but to, uh, to believe that cheap food is our right. And it's mm. not, uh, and you know, the cost of cheap food is, uh, cheap food's a myth in health. It's, the cost of cheap food is far too high in health terms and socioeconomic terms. And actually we're kidding ourselves because as taxpayers, we're paying for it four or five times over. It's not just the price on the shelf, but of course it's as taxpayers, we're paying for it to fund the health service, to clean up the, the environment, to clean up the water. Uh, and, and there's two other ways I've forgotten now, but anyway, it's about five times mm. over. Uh, so, but, um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a dilemma now. Well, also the true cost in terms of yes. exactly what you're saying yeah. to the health of the planet and yeah. to the health of human beings. Yes. You know, to eat food that is saturated in trans fats, um, trans corn starches, corn syrups, yes. um, heavily heavily polluted with um, industrialized yeah. fertilizer. But one of the things that cheers me up a bit, but I think they're not there yet, because you see at the moment, there's very little incentive for somebody to produce something that's, you see, it's, for me, food is all about nourishing and it needs to be wholesome and it needs to keep us healthy. So it needs to be nutrient dense. And as a farmer, I really feel very strongly that I have a responsibility with whatever I grow and produce and sell to something that is going to actually Make, keep them healthy rather than doing them a damage, which is what a lot of mm. the food is doing now. And the reason there are lots of, lots of bits of research that come out all the time, one thing after the other. And there some time ago, there was uh, some research that said that on average, the food that's on the shelf nowadays is 40, has 40% of the nutrients that it used to have in the 1950s. I mean, how shocking is that? But anyway, there are various people one of whom I know in America, at the moment trying to, developing, and they're not quite there yet, a thing called a spectrometer. And the idea would be that you're on your phone, uh, you would go, in, if you're going to do your shopping in the supermarket or whatever, you could bring your, your, your phone, you'd have an app on it, and you'd put it up to the carrots that were, say if there were two or three lots of carrots or tomatoes or something, and one might be, you know, two quid, and another would be, 350 another whatever anyway and you put uh, your spectrometer up to it and then it would give you a nutrient reading of the thing this could be a game changer for farmers as well because in the end then people could decide to 
pay more for something that was going to nourish them more, that had more nutrients in it. Now, you can imagine all the inputting of information that has to be, but that's well on the way. And for farmers, oh my goodness, for farmers to be paid more and producers mm. for actually producing more um, uh, healthy and more nutrient-dense food would be a wonderful thing. Well, At the I moment, it's not there, you know. It's Is right. there the... One of the things that I was curious to read as well, the slow food movement, which you're both yeah. uh, active members Involved of and yeah. uh, advocates of um, what they do, that was founded in Italy in 1989. Mm. And, you know, it's there to uh, support regional and traditional mm. techniques and to um, try and go back to a slower approach to farming methods and all that kind of thing. But 30 years later, we're still talking about those same issues. Mm. And going back to your point about education at the beginning, is that how we combat it? Do we have to go into schools, get them when they're young and oh. try and instill in them some respect for growing their own food? Or I mean, yeah. I personally think there has to be some top-down legislation mm. at some level. I think we do need, you know, some kind of... Um, I, I, I really do believe that. And I, I think um, when you were just talking about health, I think the thing is we have been so misled by big business, really, about what mm. is healthy for it. We were talking about when did it happen that everybody carried a water bottle, a plastic water <laughs> bottle around with them, know. you know? Because that actually wasn't around even... You, you don't see anyone who doesn't have a plastic... I mean... Well, I don't, because I'm ancient. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just drink when I'm thirsty, and that's it. But, but you know, that kind of <laughs> 2.5 litres of water you're meant to drink a day, and then I was saying, because I've got a daughter who's 22 and is literally the product of those fads, you know. Mm. She's always telling me, Mum, have you heard about birch water? Have you heard about rosemary water? What about, like, acai? And what about, like... What's and, that? I well, acai is an Amazonian berry that they... Oh, yeah. But the thing is that they're... You're not having uh, an acai bowl, Jarena. <laughs> no, I haven't lived. <laughs> but, but the thing is, uh, you know, it's, we were talking about good fats this morning. You know, actually, fat was demonised by the sugar industry yeah, in totally. the late 70s. Not a, not a, nothing yeah. to link fat to nothing whatsoever in any of the research or any of the science mm. to link fat to any kind of cardiovascular disease. I mean, it's not there. And for four mm. decades, our governments, our doctors, mm. our uh, nutritionists, our dietitians, everybody repeated the same thing until Asim Malhutra and his team at Bristol over here mm. looked and did a meta-analysis of all of the research and said, hang on a minute, where's the connection here? no connection but now it's so difficult to persuade people yeah. mm -hmm. that uh, that low fat isn't good for them yeah. people actually can't some people can't eat butter or whatever yeah. uh, they're just so convinced and think of the industry needless to say there was was Behind built on us. that so of course it's very hard to reverse the and we need fat my god we need fat so badly if i can just say one thing maybe that maybe might be helpful and it's a basic fact of nutrition only two vitamins are water soluble that's b and c the rest are all fat soluble so unless we eat some fat or olive oil or something but it must be good fat good butter or something with the rest of our food our body can't extract the nutrients from the rest of our food so that's why in the when america of course went on to the whole super low fat thing before we did and once you know people very quickly were showing signs of obesity because it's connected uh, we're show, showing signs of obesity and then people who were super obese they uh, they thought the medical thing at the time was to put them on a totally no fat diet and and then they were so we're very surprised to find that after five or six months they were showing distinct signs of malnutrition. Mm. Of course they were, because mm. they couldn't, they had no fat for their body to extract the uh, nutrients from the rest of the food. So it's been a 
desperately serious thing for the health of things. And now people can't, you know, you're still people buying low-fat milk and light. Mm. I've banned it. It's banned from the school. Mm. And always was banned from the school and from Ballymaloo and everything for the, for the health of the nation. Well, as a yeah. product of salted Irish butter in one centimetre thick slices on bread. I have oh, absolutely no, no. no problem I wouldn't say a centimetre thick. <laughs> you need to see your teeth mark. Um, there's a, a kind of a tricky right. question that I'd love to get to the bottom of. Obviously, um, you've the organic farm at the cookery school and ho hopefully we'll, we'll be able to answer it. The or organic produce is it, for a lot of people, just too expensive. Yeah. And obviously we're incredibly privileged and we're in this bubble of food and we're all passionate about it and we're able to do that. But is there any way around that? Because I know you were instrumental in the proliferation of uh, food markets around the Ireland. Farmers markets. Yeah. Farmers mm. markets. Mm. And is there, you know, do we have to be buying organic to get good nutritious food? Is there a way around that? Well, do you know something? I really, really think we have to buy as much chemical-free food as possible. I mean, a lot of people say to me, well, when I say this, and, you know, the word organic is a very divisive word, and actually it's kind of, you know, whatever the degrees of it. But basically, we, we, we can't say any longer. We don't know the damage, the pesticides, herbicides, all of these are doing to us. We can no longer say that. So and a lot of people say to me, well, it's all very fine for you because... The perception, or you either, if we say this, the perception is that we can afford it. And of course, it's. And the other funny thing is, if you talk about food and food being good for you, people think you're elitist. I mean, where did that come from? Uh, but anyway, uh, but basically, I often say to them, well, look, hang on a minute now. How much did you spend on those nails last week, or on your magazines, or on beer, or whatever? And then it's exactly back to your point. Then we realize that food nourishing wholesome food has come a long way down our list yeah. of priorities and very often we're not connecting and then I say how much do you spend on meds how much do you spend on supplements and our food really our nutrients can come and, and do come from from organic or chemical free food really fresh food and I'd also be saying to people actually everybody's so busy but if you possibly can Grow something yourself again on the windowsill, on, on in trays, anywhere. But look at what's happened in the last decade or two. We've handed over complete control over our food choices to the supermarkets and the multinational food companies. You know, I mean, what are we like? The most important thing in our lives, we've in our busyness and everything, and everybody is busy and it's not easy. But somehow, this very important thing has come down the list of priorities and. and Somehow we're not, you know, anyway, it's, it's not easy. But, I've, you know, the older I get, the more I realise how important that is, really. And so yeah. is it convenience? Because sometimes I feel like that is the enemy. Because, you know, if it is the case that we're going to go to a farmer's market or we're going to go and pick up something yeah, ourselves and cook it's it, how, it's, it's going to take more make time. A big extra. Yes, but, you know, there's a perception also that farmer's markets are much more expensive. That's not actually the case. The mm. people that tell you that farmer's markets are more expensive are usually people who don't go to the farmer's markets. And you look, at, look you, if you go to the farmer's market, now I can't, maybe there is exceptions, I'm sure there probably are, but basically if you go along and you build up a relationship 
with now not to be misunderstood uh, with your uh, with your stallholder at the, <laughs> at, the <laughs> at the farmers market, but they'll tell you when there are gluts and all of that as well. And of course, that's another skill is to know how to use up gluts and to be able to use up leftovers and all that sort of thing again. The thing about growing something yourself is, my God, it's transformative as well. Back to the children. Mm. If, the, if you're sowing seeds with children and everything, if they grow something, get all excited about the little seed so growing. Excited. They'll eat absolutely everything. I mean, we have 11 grandchildren. They're kind of part feral. And, and I mean, <laughs> some of the winter feed house, they almost eat the broccoli off the, off the plants. And they eat, love vegetables. But you see, children, I'm sure, I don't know, I haven't any science for this either, but uh, children have a very sensitive palate. And I'm sure they, basically, the vegetables that have been sitting on a supermarket shelf for a week or whatever, or indeed uh, that have chemical residues in them, I'm absolutely sure that children can taste that. But they don't know why they don't like something because they... <laughs> well, they are no longer yeah. delicious either. I mean, yeah. because nothing's ripened. You know, I mean, I mean I I'm not surprised that people don't like vegetables if you buy them from the supermarket. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, I mean, if you ever had a mango in mangoes... I grew up in Australia. Mango oh, season in Australia. Mango I ever had was in Australia, actually. But when they're really perfumed yeah. and they're so sweet, they're these yeah. hard fruit. They don't taste like yes. a mango. A strawberry does with that huge white hull. Yes. Because the other thing is we don't have the varietals but anymore that we used to. when you grow will taste like that. Yeah, Yeah, but also we, most um, fruit and veg are grown, um, you know, for uh, predictability, for tr that they yeah. travel reliably. You know, they're yeah, so they can bounce and, and, can bounce yeah. and they won't bruise, but they're not grown for taste. You know, we don't we don't value food in the same way, and we don't feel we do feel it's an, in our inalienable right not to not to pay a lot for food. Yeah. But we don't pay the people who grow the food for us oh, properly so either. True. Should we make organic food cheaper? I mean, things like chocolate. I mean, if you've actually looked into how chocolate is grown, what the farmers, especially in West Africa, are paid. Uh, this child slavery, the, um, I mean, it's so shocking and we'll pay 65p for a Mars bar. But we, everything, I mean, it's, it's chocolate it, takes 10 yeah. years for the first pod to come. It's like such a long, yeah. so you have to split it open, ferment it yeah. for days, you know, yeah. but in the sun. I mean, then you have to extract, I mean, it just goes on and on. And yet we think that we should be able to pay 45p. And yeah. that's got to go all the way back to the travel, the middleman. Can you imagine actually really what the farmer is receiving Nothing. for that? Yeah. Nothing. Well, at the moment in general, and it's just a system to a great extent, the reality is the farmers and food producers, some of you may be in farming, are not being paid enough to produce nourishing, wholesome food. And it's very difficult to know. You're sitting there probably thinking, well, look, I'd be happy to pay more. How do I do it? And, and you know, how do you... But actually one of the... The best ways is if you buy, if you can visit a farmer's market every now and then, at least all of the, the money is going directly mm, to, to the, the farmer. It's keeping people on the land. Many people now, I mean, of all the things I've been involved in, my connection to re-establishing the farmers' market system in Ireland about 26 or 7 years ago, with one in the beginning and now about 165 or 70, it's the thing that I feel most that has made a little difference because so many farmers say to me, oh my God, I wouldn't be still on the land if it wasn't for this farmer's mm -hmm. market. But there's lots of hope because I'll tell you what, a lot of young people now, not a, maybe a huge amount, but in America, it's really happening. The young people are wanting to go back to grow something again. Access to land, of course, is quite a problem, but there's a whole young agrarian movement. There's the Greenhorn movement. Mm -hmm. And there are uh, people who are going back and actually 
uh, on smaller farms, but selling direct. If you want to survive on a small farm, you must sell direct yeah. to the public through some kind of... You have that great farm drop system over here. Mm. There are new uh, routes to market are now being developed, like farm drop, for example, where they're putting technology together with uh, farming, and the farmer then gets, or the producer gets, 80% of the price, mm. the retail price, as opposed to, if they're lucky, between 25 and 30% of the retail price uh, normally. But there, yeah, anyway... Huge it's a, difference. A, a thing. Yeah. Um, another uh, area that I suppose could help <coughs> is with food waste. And I know at spring you mm. have the scratch menu where you're using parts of the vegetable or otherwise might yeah. not have normally been used. Um, but for the person at home, is there <laughs> is there a way that we can be kind of conscious of this? What what should we be bearing in mind when it comes well, to? It, well, food I think waste? we were talking. I was talking about it briefly with you at breakfast this mm. morning, and, and Tim was like, "Oh, that's just how we used to all eat." You mm. know, I mean, we have um, <clears throat> what he um, what Jordan's talking about is we have a little menu between five thirty and six thirty every night of the week, where for twenty pounds. No dietaries. At Sky. At, at spring. Sorry, at spring. Yeah, so, yeah. so there's no dietaries. Um, so you can't keep out the cream or, you know. Well, be... certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we call it Scratch. And uh, and I, I don't write it, actually. So it's it's been a really lovely initiative that we've mm. done as a restaurant. Firstly, on many levels, on an economic... Because the other thing I feel that... Even with my work with my work with Fernvera, with your work with Ballymaloo, with your work with the farm, they all have to. We have to find some way of making economic sense of oh it. Oh my goodness! Because yeah. if we don't, they'll, we'll, yeah. we don't have any don't chance survive. of change, yeah. and, mm. and the change can't happen mm. because. Um, and so, we used to have actually no pre-theatre crowd where we're located in Somerset House. We were just falling off the edge of the West End, and no one would come, like we'd be an empty restaurant it's a big restaurant an empty restaurant till 7:30 at night when people started coming for dinner so I, and i really wanted young people to come too mm. and i'm i'm aware that we're not and i'm 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 unapologetic that we're not you know like it's not it's it is i suppose an expensive restaurant um, but i i don't apologize for that because of the producers and the suppliers mm. that we use and <clears throat> but i really wanted young people to be able to come or anybody to be able to come mm. or to come three nights a week if you wanted to and um, and actually, uh, we noticed it was a, it came from the gluts, really, mm. because you know, yeah. it, everything just tumbles onto you, doesn't it? When mm. it comes, you know, strawberries just tumble in the door. Raspberries come, you know. I mean, in the summer they have this wonderful bounty. kilos yeah. and kilos and sort of you know. And so I thought, well, let's. A, I wanted to take more from Jane, mm. um, and we had an offer where we'd take all the imperfect things because mm. she's such an artist that she didn't want to send us anything with anything that was less than perfect. We said, well, take everything that you've got. And, well done. Um, yeah. And then what we do is um, I, we have a rotor at work and I, I'm quite controlling about the menu. And so I just say, you guys write it. And so we have a rotor. So everybody from, a, um, you know, throughout the whole kitchen, whether you're, you've just come in or whether you've been there for quite a long time and you're quite senior, gets to write mm. the scratch menu. So you can reflect. We have a shelf. I always say it's like the ready, steady um, cook mm. shelf. It's called Scratch downstairs. We keep all our peelings, all our buttermilk, all our potato skins, all our fish trim. We just have one shelf and you just go down there at four in the afternoon and you write the menu. Mm. And it's been really lovely. It's really mm. lovely to see what they do. I'm yeah. so proud of, I, like I'm proud of them. People really like it. Yeah. And economically it's made sense for us because yeah. it was food that we weren't, we weren't going to use, mm. do anything with it, you know. So yeah. actually, it's brilliant. On, what a strong message as well. Really great. And yeah. it's 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 really nice. It's really nice, and it's um it's and actually it's probably of all the things I've ever done, it's the thing that people have been the most receptive. receptive yeah, to. brilliant.
Yeah. But you probably remember, uh, uh, Jordan, that at the cooking school we have, because we're in the middle of a farm, we also have hens. And so in every kitchen, yeah. there's a hen's bucket. So when the students are cooking in the morning, um, you know, the peelings and all that sort of thing, the first thing they think is, well, does it go into the stock pot? And if it doesn't qualify for the stock pot, it goes into the hen's bucket. But it nearly also, got eaten alive by the hens going <laughs> down that bucket <laughs> the morning. Best <laughs> thing. But also, uh, we every day uh, at the menu, at the, at the demonstration, there's a demonst cookery demonstration in the afternoon, and then the following morning they cook what's, you know, they've, we, has been demonstrated the day before. But we look and see what's left over from lunch, and uh, then there's always a how to use leftovers in a delicious way, almost on every single uh, class. And I mean, take, you're talking about peelings. Ta we can't put the potato peelings <coughs> into the stock pot uh, because potato soaks up flavor rather than giving it out. And the hens don't much like the potatoes. Although, of course, then it goes from the, what the hens don't eat then goes down to be composted actually so it goes it's a full circle which goes back onto the soil to make the soil more fertile and all of that but basically the hens don't much like raw potato peelings so we now we deep fry them and they're so like super delicious <coughs> absolutely super yeah. delicious and you sprinkle them with whatever yeah. and uh, so there's a million but actually back to for one second to grow, growing something yourself i can tell you if you sow a seed and wait for it to grow into something to eat you won't you waste you won't waste yeah. a scrap of it. Yeah. And this is one of the other serious things about the very cheap food thing: is easy come, easy go. go. And again, it's part of. I mean, I kind of have these skills from being a child. I mean, I'm 71 now. There's some advantages to being ancient. <laughs> That's one of them that automatically I you know, grew up in a house where, and indeed when I came to Ballymaloo with my mother-in-law Myrtle, she would, last thing she did every evening was go around the fridges and say, well, look, this, we'll use this for lunch tomorrow, we'll do it, they make it into this. So we all learned how to make delicious things out of uh, little leftovers of this and that. But yeah. I think, I mean, I grew up and my father was obviously a child during the war, just after the war in Australia, oh, and he used to always tell us... That sharpens the mind, yeah? Yeah, well, mm. he always used to tell a story. There were five, I think they lived, there were a family of six and the grand, my, my, my great grandmother lived with them he used to always <coughs> when we were children they'd have roast lamb on sunday but you'd mm. have one slice of roast lamb mm. and then on monday it would be made into shepherd's pie i mean the way he told the story the the, the one leg of lamb went on for about 10 yeah. days you know it was like shepherd's pie sandwiches and, yeah. you know yeah but they didn't but that was like totally it yeah. but people literally used everything didn't yeah. they and yeah. they wouldn't they wouldn't waste a yeah. thing and my mother grew up in the war and she didn't eat all her dinner my grandmother would make her have it for breakfast. <laughs> she yeah, just put the plate out that. again. Well, in a family of nine, <coughs> if you had, didn't keep your hand around yes. it, <laughs> my brother used to say, look at the so-and-so, so-and-so, we knew that one quickly. The, the sausage would be gone off your plate. If you. <laughs> Both of you are the product of um, parents who were passionate about food. Um, well, they ways, didn't I even think. talk about it. My, yeah. my uh, you know, it wasn't when I was the child. <clears> people didn't... <coughs> talk about food in the way we now uh, talk about food, really, but it was just an ever-present thing, the, the, you know, the smell wafting around, but we didn't, you know, we weren't kind of what the way we are about food nowadays. It wasn't, I think it wasn't cool to talk about food. Cool wasn't even a word, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah. I grew up in a different, food was um, really, really important in my family yeah. from the point of view that my father was macrobiotic. Yes. So oh, I really? grew up oh, yes. in, um, mm. with a kind of eating... Extra consciousness, yeah. Yeah, and actually um, <clears throat> he believed absolutely you are what you eat. That's what yeah. we were always told. Yeah. And he also believed that you could cure anything yeah. through food. But we grew up, it was very militant in my house, actually, yeah. and it was not delicious. Mm. 
So uh, it was brown food. And, you know, we'd have for breakfast, you know, porridge with umeboshi plums. And, I mean, it's actually a traditional um, Japanese way of eating, which is uh, two men, Georgia Sawa and Mishikushi. I mean, I grew up with it steeped in it. And... um, but actually, what's so interesting is it's eating within a 500-mile square radius. It's eating um, 60% grain intake, very few deadly nightshades. Um, but, uh, but actually, it's so similar to the way I cook now. Really? Yeah. In a way, I mean, we would rebel. We'd go straight out the streets and we'd go and buy penny sweets and we'd eat finger buns and, yeah. you know, we'd, like, try and escape from this sort of quite rigid... Um, uh, kind of eating way of eating. It wasn't mm. joyful. It didn't mm. feel joyful. So mm. how do you find <clears throat> both of you with adult children? Because I now have a two and a half year old and I'm constantly yeah. wondering what he's going to be like in <laughs> 15, 20 years time, how, what his relationship with food will be. Will he be into cooking? Or will it be like, God almighty, Jordan never stopped cooking. He'll be put off it completely. How are your kids now? Are <laughs> they big into way, it? it? Or have they um, rebelled and gone <clears> the other way? I have to say with yeah. my, I've got two girls and I feel... They're so at ease in a kitchen. Yeah. It gives me such pleasure. It's one mm. of the things that I feel like I've, I've... And a lot of it was, well, firstly, growing up with me, with the kids, I don't know how it was with you, but people used to say to the girls all the time, oh, my God, you're so lucky. Your mum's a cook. You must have amazing food in the house. But, I mean, I spend probably 12 hours a day around food, mm. cooking, tasting, stirring, plating... Mm. I, I don't actually get home and whiz up a storm. <laughs> so, um, you know, I eat really, we eat very simply at home. I do eat completely organically. I do buy just mm. as I need. And I have an amazing store mm. cupboard full of incredible grains, mm. olive oils, mm. anchovies, mm. a good chunk of parmesan. And, um, but because of that... They were kind of drawn into cooking. Mm. So, you know, if I did cook at home, it's like, okay, you're making the salad dressing. Yeah. You, you know. Yeah. And I really have pleasure. <clears throat> they both cook for themselves and they both cook almost every night. And they're not like, they don't want to be chefs. They don't want to be, but, but they have this ease with mm, food, yeah, which is really too. kind of, it's such a pleasure for me to see. And they both eat. They do care about where their food comes from. Mm. Um, but it's just really nice. They're not intimate. They, they just like skate around the kitchen in a mm. very kind of... And it, I really love... It's one of the things I'm proudest yeah. of. <laughs> and they can whip up. It's a yeah. wonderful thing to give children to pass on quietly these kind of just the skills naturally. Quiet skills, So yeah. that they can whip up a spontaneous meal yeah. with... And it's one of the easiest ways for them to win friends and influence yeah, people. And to give well. pleasure, and to, to give, give to people, pleasure. Yeah. And, yeah. And actually one of your, still, one of your uh, offspring, uh, which Toby. Which one, my child or grandchild? Your child, <coughs> Toby. Yeah. I was in Ballymaloo a few weeks ago and there's a fermentation lab there, which wasn't there yeah. when I was That's right. at school almost 10 years ago. Yeah, well, we're like trailer trash out of the back now because we need to build <laughs> Well, very on. nice trailers. I we, wish I had a fermentation got, got trailer. Lots, lots of trailers back in my with a bread shed and yeah. a, fermenta- a bubble shed is called fermentation. But that kind of goes to gut health as well, which is incredibly popular now these days. Everyone's talking about fermented everything. I mean, Mm. I obviously worked in Korea for ages and make a lot of my own kimchi, but is there, Mm. do you think that's the way forward as well, that we should all be doing a lot more ferments? We should be considering our gut health more? Oh my God, yeah. Uh, definitely, without question. I mean, you know, again, just looking at the science, I mean, here in, in the UK, Tim Spector and his whole team of people in Ireland, there's incredible 
revolutionary work going on in UCC in Cork, University College Cork, on the link between the gut, our gut biome, and there's no question now that everybody just accepts, it's happening in America as well in more research, everyone has come to the same conclusion that you know the health of your gut biome, uh, your mental health and your physical health totally depends on it. And Without question, we chatted about this this morning too. Mm. Uh, but in Ireland, again, one of these, uh, another survey, survey recently, they came out and said that 42% of all the, um, the, the children, or whatever you like to call them, at, at third level and in second level uh, education and third level are suffering from acute anxiety. And I'm absolutely convinced that this is connected to very often the fact that they don't have that much, much money to spend on food and often maybe booze is more of a priority than food, but definitely connected to the health of the gut biome and just needing real food as opposed to, you know, pot noodles or something like that. And actually I picked up one of the, it wasn't a new scientist, but something other in the airport coming through, there was an article about, you know, gut health and all of that. And they, again, they've just, again, <coughs> linking this incredible epidemic of anxiety. Mm. And, and it's absolute total anxiety that so many people take almost as a norm to the deterioration in our national diets, really, and in the food. Which are this And this is a real crisis for many, many people, a reality of every day. Yeah. In Korea, actually, during the outbreak of the SARS virus, yeah. obviously in Korea they eat kimchi morning, noon and night. Yeah. It was um, the, I think it was the Seoul National University, I'm not entirely sure yeah. which university in Korea, but uh, they did a study and it was one of the only um, countries in that part of Asia that didn't have a massive SARS outbreak because the yeah. lactic acid no killed yeah. the uh, killed yeah. the virus. Yeah. So yeah. it obviously does work. But yeah. I mean, fermentate. I mean, so it's it's um, you know, in, in our world for a few years, it's been very kind of uh, like fashionable mm. uh, in, among yeah. sort of chefs. To kind of, you know, everybody's talking about pickling, uh, fermenting, and so. But you've also got to remember that I don't think there is probably a culture in the world that it didn't. Absolutely, it's ancient. Um, it's ancient, yeah. and it's it was a way of preservation. <coughs> yeah. So you know whether through salting yeah. or I mean, and also we had natural ferments in so many things. We had natural ferment in our bread. Yes. Mm. Um, we had Sour wine, sourdough, pure natural wine, sourdough, yeah. beer, wine, yeah. everything, uh, coffee fermented. Mm. Yeah, mm. all fermented, and uh, so many things. <laughs> like you know, I mean, I, I am convinced that. Um, you know, gluten is a very powerful form of protein. Mm. And, uh, um, you know, so lots of things happened around the sort of 50s when you're talking about Bakelite and things yeah. like that. But we also had something called the Chorley Wood ma method of yeah, making, making bread, bread. Yeah. which was a revolution for everybody because it meant that you could um, mix, knead, um, rise, bake, slice, and pack the it in four, good, yeah. four hours. Yeah. And so... Um, <clears throat> You know, real breads, as you know, and yeah. Tim knows, the 24-hour process. 24, 48-hour yeah. fermentation yeah. process, yeah. And it's a kind of living, live, um, you know, bacteria that yeah. you're creating through a natural fermentation, yeah. natural um, mother. So I think we've lost it in so... We used to get it in so many places. Yes, yes. And now we, we get it in very few places, yeah. you know. And plus all the... We were talking about this morning, like, all the antibiotics and stuff like that. You know, we have... I mean, I don't remember, and I, I don't want to be controversial... But I do not remember when I was younger, um, nut allergies. Mm -hmm. No, well, this is a whole other area, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. I don't remember autism yeah. in the way that we seem to have now. Mm. I just, I don't remember all the kind of, like, intolerances that pe mm. people didn't seem to have food mm. intolerances now. And, uh, 
And I think it's literally because our guts aren't strong enough to cope mm. with things. Well, anymore. it's definitely, I'm because sure, we don't have connected in, in some way. But yeah, and, and as you, you were asking there whether fermentation is an important thing, and there's no question, as you were saying, our modern diet is very deficient in fermented foods. I mean, unless uh, in Korea or in, you know, in Germany, for example, with sauerkraut and things like that. And uh, it is definitely, I know we talked that it was about a trend or whatever, but now this is something worth hanging on to. This is something for everybody can do at home. And that's yes. one of the reasons why we're, we do, have been doing, we have this fermentation shed and we've been teaching, of course, people how to make, you know, water kefir, milk kefir, kimchi, all the various things, all the different pickles. And actually at the school, this is, my, this is a little story now, but we're, connect, we're uh, um, we have, in contact with uh, Professor Ted Dynan at UCC in Cork, who's done all that research with his team on uh, the gut and everything. And a, number, a couple of years ago, um, at the 12-week course, you know, the students were just about to come in. From, they come in from all over the world, like it could be uh, that particular course, there were 16 nationalities on it. And I just suddenly got a brainwave and I, uh, I shot off an email to Ted and said, look, would you be interested uh, if I asked some of the students, told the students about the research you're doing? Uh, I mean, it's not a jail, but they're with us for three months. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the food that they're eating comes directly from the farm or a lot of it's local. And of course, we buy in spice and everything from all over the world. But Basically, I suddenly so I said, "Would you be interested uh, in um, if I if the students were interested in being part of your research?" So he shot back an email right away and, and said yes. And so I sent an email to the students who were coming in and said, I told them about his research and said, "Would you be interested in giving a poo sample before you eat anything <laughs> uh, at the school?" And then, but at the end of the twelve weeks, they will come and take another poo sample and just to I mean, I thought I'd have cancellations actually, but. Uh, um, yeah, and, and just to compare the difference in your gut biome. Well, anyway, we could, they couldn't do it on that one because they had to get permission from the ethics committee. So we did it on the next one. And, uh, you know, the over a third, no, just under a third of the students said wanted to be part of the research, which was amazing in itself. That was, you know, because we have about 66 students. Um, and uh, so basically, and of course, I mean, no surprise, of course, there was a big difference in the health of the gut. Um, they also, by the way, have access to raw milk because we have a, a small Jersey herd. So they have, they can, if they want to drink raw milk, which is incredible, and from a small organic herd. And uh, they also have, of course, uh, we also have organic pasteurized, homogenized milk. So there's a, a choice there. But they, this was um, you know, I mean, you could see it with. It. So we actually, I knew that I knew this would be the case because we see students, they feel it themselves, their energy building up, mm. their skin feeling different, everything, just on a different kind of food, just on real food. So, you know, it can make that much of a difference. But anyway, that was that. It's lovely mm. to have the proper research done. UCC were really incredibly strict about how it was done and everything so that was and we got the results of it there some time ago it's now going for peer review and all of that that's incredible yeah. Mm, yeah. incidentally if there was ever an advertisement mm -hmm. for the opposite of Chorleywood bread it's the <laughs> porridge sourdough that is available right here and also in spring <laughs> so good uh, which bread. is just I could live on that bread yeah well, with I have one to centimeter say, thick slices of butter so many things are circular that actual we began making bread and um, Tim made bread way before we did, but we came and did the course with Chad Robertson mm. and uh, Rich, uh, Richard Hall. Oh yeah, from Tartine. At yeah. Tartine, oh at Ballymaloo. So yeah. that was the first time we started making bread. 
Oh. was after we'd been to Bali Super, yeah. yeah. Tell us, Sky, about your plastic initiative at Spring. Mm. I think oh. that's amazing too. Um, well, we... Um, oh, no, oh, not plastic, but the cutting it's out. It's the yeah. single-use plastic, cutting well, I, it all out. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we're quite similar in the way that um, it's really great to push forward all the time, isn't mm. it? You know, and I was actually... Yeah, sorry to repeat myself to you, but no, I no, just please do, tell because it's such important. Well, first of all, what yeah. I want to say about Ballymaloo, and I really mean this, and I was saying it at breakfast to you guys this morning, and I th I've thought about it a lot, um, is um, I find you're so progressive in the way you think, <laughs> yet you're also divinely old-fashioned, you know. So if you go to Ballymaloo, it's one of the most kind of, like, gorgeously old-fashioned places. The dessert trolley go. is a thing. The dessert trolley, <laughs> the sort of... Um, I think once I went, I think one of the waiters was literally so old, he pulled over a stool and sat down. <laughs> that was probably Joe. He was working at Ballymoo for over 60 years. But, yeah. you know, but just like everything about it, it's almost you're going back in time and yet you, you're always pushing forward. Oh, thank you and, for that. And I really mean that. And I think it's an incredible um, achievement that you can, you can capture the beauty of the past but oh. while looking towards the future. But I mean, and, uh, but I... Otherwise, if I was, if I just had to write a menu and go and call table 27, I've done it for, this is my 38th year, mm. <laughs> this year, and uh, I have to push forward. And, and actually, I went to a talk um, by an incredible woman called Sean Sutherland about in 2016, November, and I didn't, hadn't really thought about plastic or mm. looked at the plastic issue. And we were dealing with scratch and waste issues and, all, and working with a farm. Mm. And I came away and I was so horrified about what I, um, what I heard and what I saw. And um, I went back and I watched uh, A Plastic Ocean on Netflix, which I'm sure some of you have seen. Mm. But there's this one scene where there's this little bird on the beach that um, has been washed up. And a marine biologist takes it back and it just slits open its stomach to see what's in it. Mm. And there's no food at all. There's 46 bits of plastic. And the mother bird can't tell the difference with what's plastic and what's food. And yeah. a tortoise can't tell if it's a jellyfish or a plastic bag. Mm. And I just thought, oh, my God, we've got, like, so I thought, let's do it. We're going to go single-use plastic-free. I mean, cold turkey. Mm. We did yeah. go cold turkey. And first of all, I catastrophized because I sort of, and I was like, oh, plastic, plastic, plastic. Everywhere I could see was, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Well, there's I no see. plastic here. No, but there will, you know, on the back of your phone, on mm. the coating of your book, and the... And actually, Sean said to me, just take six items that yeah. you can, like, don't think about, um, uh, you know, multiple-use plastic. Yeah. Because plastic is also, like you were saying about Bakelite, it's kind of a marvellous thing. Uh, it was kind of mm. revolutionised. Yes. But what we've done is just done too much of it. And, mm. um, so we... We, all, we always had free water and we always had a filtered water system, so we've never had plastic or bottled water. We also kind of did it as a team. So we, we got Sean in, we showed 21 minutes of a plastic ocean, and we then, because I knew if it was just my kind of like Sky being, oh, yeah. Sky's going single-use plastic-free, like, oh, God, how exhausting. Yeah. Had to get everybody on board. And so we nominated, um, like, ambassadors in the yeah. bar and in the finance and, in, you know, and we brainstormed what we could do. And we got rid of six items basically and um uh so what were the six items so um the first was cling film yeah and we did our facts so the thing that was really powerful for us is we actually took all the cling film that we'd bought over the last year from our order sheets yeah and we worked out how many meters was in a roll of cling film and then we worked out how many we'd bought and we worked out that we used approximately 800 kilometers of cling film a year 
and where one of 15,000 restaurants supposedly, approximately mm. in London, or food yeah. outlets. And so if every, we don't use sous vide cooking or we yeah. didn't use that much cling film apart yeah. from, you know, covering, covering things. things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that was 12 and a half million kilometers of cling film in one city, in one part, uh, yeah. in one country in the world. So we just went cold turkey. We spent 1,200 pounds on changing. We bought lids for all our gastros. Uh, so we changed. And what our, are the lids made of? Or so they're, 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 they're gastro stainless lids. steel. Because yeah. you know, gastros are those kind of stainless steel. You know, that you'll see in every sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. And and in the restaurant like industry, you buy, if you buy a pot, you have to buy the lids separately. They're not like domestic yeah. things, and everything costs more. So you can put cling film to make anything boil. Yeah. You know, on top of it, you can put cling film, cook something yeah. in the oven, and, and it goes past six degrees. Anyway, so we got rid of that. We had these really beautiful ice cream cups that I was so proud of, but I discovered they were washed in a plastic film like coffee cups. Mm. We'd gone through 30,000 of them since opening that we'd bought, and that was the length of the shard, so we got rid of those. We, had, we got rid of um, soap. So the soap we, we had... got rid of soap? Well, the soap in the kitchen was... Uh, the, I won't mention the name, but it was one of those very fashionable, everybody loves a brand of soap that's everywhere. Oh, don't tell and, me. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> so what they did was they won't sell refills. They'll only send it and that's sell right. it. And so we wrote to them and they said, no, I'm sorry, we can't sell it. So we had all... We, and actually, you've got them here now. We've got Wildsmith and we had all the ceramic yes. um, made so that we could refill them. Um, we got rid of, hang on, straws was one yeah. we, and we have cornstarch straws. So for, we had loo paper that all our loo paper came in wrapped in plastic. plastic yeah. So we did a three month test to see if we could buy some in, we buy something, it's called Who Gives a Crap? And oh, it's, what? yeah. What's it called? Very Who great. Gives a Crap? Oh, and it's um, recycled paper and then they, they bring it all in, yeah. in paper, um, so we don't have the big yeah. things of plastics. The one, the hardest one for us was plastic ba uh, garbage bags, and we did a bit of research into it. And we uh, don't use biodegradable because they all end up in landfill. Yeah. And as soon as anything ends up in landfill, it won't degrade. It won't ever break down. So really? if you had a nappy from Henry, if Henry VIII's time, it would still be a perfect nappy if you went into landfill. <laughs> So, There's an image. <laughs> so we use recycled, yeah. and I think the next thing we really have to do is, because uh, I know in London everything seems to, you recycle it meticulously and the garbage truck comes along and it all goes, it all into, goes the into the same garbage, yeah. and, you know. So, yeah, and um, it was really fun. It was really good to do. We mm -hmm. really enjoyed it. And, yeah, it's yeah. good to feel but good I, about I, what you do, I, isn't actually it? You, you know, you, you'd also, I think it would be really good to, to share what you shared with me earlier about how much plastic from the time we're infants that we're now, that the children and everybody are all, uh, uh, you know, uh, exposed to. And I mean, about dummies and everything. I was like, repeat that, because you, well, there was a word that I hadn't heard before, which thorough, is, yeah. Thorough. Which is what, um, is the poison that seeps into you from plastic. So, um, so I was just talking to Sean the other night, actually, um, and she, she'd just come back from, they'd gone to a conference, and uh, they, they say a lot of kind of, I can't remember the word. It's the, it's the autism that you get around the age of six, and it's called, it's not regressive autism, but it's the autism that you're not born with. They say it's because it's all the plastic that children have around them. So whether it's a plastic, uh, you know, a nappy is plastic, dummies, children's toys, you know, plastic spoons, plastic Everything plates. you're handling, yeah. Yeah, but also, I mean, really, there isn't a, I mean, we really, shouldn't eat fish at all at the moment. I mean, because just because, I mean, we have completely 
you know, the oceans are completely like Licked up. And I mean, yeah. They, they, yeah, there's no real, there's very little yeah. sustainable fish when I start to look into it. But there's no fish anywhere in the world that you can eat that isn't contaminated with plastic. So they are all, they yeah. have a very high level of thorate mm. in it. And uh, so that's our own personal health is suffering definitely. Mm. And, but also uh, just, I mean, just the health of the the planet yeah, because yeah, of plastic. Of yeah. Yeah. So that's um, what I meant when I said in the beginning the the, the, the wool ball yeah. that I keep on seeing in my mm. we can't we can't deal with good food without dealing with plastic. We can't deal with um, with personal health without dealing with uh, you know industrialized agriculture. It's 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 a great big mush of a problem that we've oh, created. No, but do you yes, know well, what I, I mean? Know, it's, I it, know what you mean, yes. Yeah. There's so many things that, yeah, that, that, that are happened. all interconnected. Yeah, that are interconnected, really interconnected. Yeah. Well, there's some, not so many advantages <coughs> of being ancient, but I'm 71, and I was, we were just talking earlier how at, I maybe none of uh, the rest of you can remember this, but I remember life well before electricity for a start, mm. and I also remember life without plastic before plastic. I mean, nowadays it's almost inconceivable to have no that there was a time when there wasn't plastic. I remember the excitement when Bakelite uh, came on, and we got we I remember going into our local uh, big town, and Mummy buying a little picnic set with remember those little cups and the Bakelite cups and so on that you could get, and then after that plastic but now it's so hard to think about for a lot of people they can't even conceive a world without plastic but yet once we start to mm. break it down we can all do I suppose little things and so on and then the other advantage of not remembering remembering life for electricity is that of course, before electricity, I'm, I was nine when electricity came to our village in a small, uh, in the middle of the Ireland, and um, I remember the excitement of everything. But then, before that, there were no fridges or freezers or anything, and you knew how to, to uh, you knew how to judge when food was safe to eat by looking at it and uh, smelling it and tasting it. And if you know, I always used to say to the students when we're talking about a forgotten skill that you know, if you could hear it, it was time to throw it out. Mm. Uh, but now I can't even say that with all the fermentation because everything bubbles and everything like that but basically this is another and this all goes back into the food waste thing of course because so much of the food nowadays if you go by sell-by dates best mm. before dates all of that stuff incredibly uh, conservative for a start and the more we throw out the better you know the people the, the multinationals mm. like it really we're playing right into the hands of it but it's so important to try to relearn that skill as well because people are scared of their food now they're scared well, I remember when I first came to England and I, um, I built up your antibody I got level married and I went to the country and um, where my parents-in-law lived I remember having cheese at dessert and I remember my father-in-law saying oh goody it's crawling <laughs> <laughs> because it was so like Right, but yeah. right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and um, and just that thing we were saying about plastic and what I mean, who, what big business decided that we had to pay for water, well, you know, and that plastic water clever bottle. big yeah. business, yeah. I'd say. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. the tip of an iceberg. Um, yeah. we could talk for hours. I'm just conscious a little bit of the time, but it's been an incredible privilege to have access to your minds to hear what you both have to say. I'm sure they'll all agree. Um, but just curious to end on. Because you'll be... We well, have to end on a very positive note Well, this somehow. is it. Yes. You're, you're both role models to so many people, including <laughs> myself. And I just wondered who your role models were, uh, whether alive, dead, still working, not, who they might be, and who else we might read up about and learn from. Oh, well, yeah, well, I mean, 
My mother was really an extraordinary woman. She was, a, 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 my father died when I was 14 actually. So I, you know, in, in a way it took me quite a long time to realize how extraordinary she was. And then of course my other, you never know in your life what's the little thing that's going to change the rest of your life. And the next thing was actually my, my path crossing in life with Myrtle Allen, mm. who became my mother-in-law. So they were both very inspirational women and had very similar philosophies. And then of course there are people like Alice, whom we've both mm -hmm. mentioned, and there, Vandana Shiva is another yeah. person mm -hmm. who, my goodness me, how amazing is she? Uh, so there are, mm -hmm. there continue to be many wonderful role models. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would, um, like, I, I would definitely echo um, Vandana Shiva, um, mm. Alice, uh, yeah. Alice Waters, absolutely, I mean, Absolutely, you are a role model for me, and I've always thought that. No, this is a mutual admiration club. I, that no, place. but I've always, I mean, I'm totally inspired by your energy, by your commitment, and um, and I, I want Thank to say, you, I, I think, no, truly, yeah. you know, and um, uh, but what I also want to say is, I know we've talked a lot of things that might have sounded quite depressing around food, yeah. but I, I would love to say that um, I adore cooking. Mm. I, I love it. Yeah. It gives me so much pleasure and it's it's a really beautiful yeah. thing. And so, um, yeah, I just thought, suddenly thought, gosh, we've talked about all the things about in the food world. But yeah. I mean, the thing is that, you know, for me, it's, it's um, I honestly still dream about it when I go to sleep. You know, yeah. it's been the thing that's given me my, the most pleasure in my, my life is to actually... Yeah stand over a pot and stir yeah. you know and it's and such a way of spreading love too, yeah isn't it? it's such yeah. a way of it's such Sharing. a kind of primal way of kind of giving and I think probably just as you know I've certainly gotten older and and probably I can't speak for you but as you I think it's just you I remember Alice said it to me um about f 10 years ago I was having a conversation with her and I was just completely immersed in food and like the next like menu and how beautiful could that plate of food be and how would people receive it and uh, she said to me, it's time to raise your eyes above the stove oh. and look at the bigger picture. Wow. And I think that yeah. probably happens as you get a bit older, don't mm. you? You know, it's that kind of bit, what legacy can we leave yes. to the industry that's given us so yes. much joy, joy and pleasure? Yeah. Well, you'll both uh, already have incredible legacies behind you, so it's incredible. <laughs> Uh, to have had you both here. Thank you both so much for chatting to me. Um, a round of applause from everyone, please. Thank you. I know we were probably supposed to have uh, some questions. I don't know whether Lucy... I'm here. You think um, we have time? Yes, just for, uh, probably time just for a, a few quick questions. Yeah. I'm Henrietta from Peapod Co. Um, Drina, how do your gardeners or your greenhouses keep up with the trend with food? Oh, well, um, in a way it's easy because we have beautiful soil and um, we, um, and also my husband who looks after the, uh, all of his team down at the greenhouse, everything, they are prepared to indulge me and grow and, and, try, and try, plant whatever seeds we want and so on. So we continue to grow as you do here as well. And of course, for all of us as cooks and chefs, you know, it's all about the produce. And it, I mean, mm. we can't make our magic. My food is very simple at Ballymaloo and, and all of our food is very simple. It's just taking beautiful ingredients and cooking them simply. And then we get all the praise. And actually, it, it reminds me to say that really the, the praise really should go to the, the people who the farmers, produce and yeah. rear and, and farm and so on. And so I, you know, uh, I, uh, over and over again, uh, I say every time you see a farmer or a gardener, give them a good hug, <laughs> and so on. 
Send I, you a hug, Jimmy. I mean, I do. Uh, we, there's some really incredible seed catalogs and seed books. Yeah. There's one, my favorite is Baker's Creek. It's yes. a, it's a American seed company, biodynamic seed company. Yeah. Literally, it's like that big. And Jane and I will sit. It's this like, is like winter yeah. thing. Yeah. And you go through, you tick. Oh, should we try that this yeah. year? Should we try yeah. cucumelons or should we, yeah. you know, like, and that's very exciting to, yeah. um, uh, Jane's grown beans for the first time this year. So yeah. lentils she's grown, yes. but also butter beans, flagellet, yeah. and buckwheat, they're incredibly buckwheat, good for the soil. All sorts of things, yeah. Buckwheat's incredible for yeah. the soil, yeah. yeah. Mm, so, yeah, definitely it's a catalog. And we buy, as, as, like a shopping as catalog, Jane does it? too, uh, all, we buy as much organic seed as we possibly can. Occasionally you have to get a derogation if there isn't organic seed for yeah. something, but we notice a huge difference in the vitality of uh, organic seeds <coughs> as well. So that's, an, that's another element. But, mm. Thank you. Hi, I'm Stella. Um, this is my sister, Marilyn. And I'm just sharing with you the story about the bottled water. Um, I mean, we're about the same age as you, so <laughs> a few, few years ago. And uh, we, my father, we had a hairdressing business. And one day, I think we were about 11, and he came back and he sat down at the table and said, you'll never guess what they're going to do now. They're only going to put um, water in bottles and sell it. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> I know. 60 years ago, so yes, crazy. It's <laughs> well, I can understand his astonishment. And my God, what a brain rave that was for some marketing <laughs> people. But I remember, uh, this is a different thing, but uh, some years ago, we have a village. Uh, we live outside a tiny village uh, in East Cork. Um, and uh, if you blink, you kind of miss it and there's one shop in it. But I remember going down to the shop and seeing they were selling grated cheese like, and, and sliced mushrooms. And I thought, oh my God, you're not going to believe I thought it was the end of life as I knew it, you know, that people would actually buy grated cheese or sliced mushroom. And I said, you know, that I said, my God, oh God, if they made toast, people would buy it. And my one of my teachers said, they do sell toast. <laughs> anyway, there you are. It's a different thing. But I think they used to actually grate the cheese when it was a little bit old, wasn't it? And they yeah. had to do something else with it. <laughs> Well, now it's so, so because we have people, I suppose, haven't got a greater a lot of the time. But anyway, remember, you're paying more every time somebody else does a bit of something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. There's another question. Is that a question yeah. up there? The, just up there. Oh, another here as well. Thank you. Sorry, I've got hold of the mic. <laughs> no, no problem. Uh, Kim. Lovely. Thank Sorry. you. Uh, Kim Slater, I'm two years behind you, so uh, <laughs> I too have lived through the anti-salt, anti-sugar, anti-butter. Yeah. How, how do you square, because I was fascinated by the nutrients basically requiring fat. Yes. How do you square that nutrients issue with veganism? Whoops, the we word. promised we would Sorry. talk about veganism. Oh. We did, didn't we? We made, yeah. we made yeah. a pledge yeah. yes. okay. so that we cannot raise. Okay, you go, Scott. Sorry, you go. I've asked the Brexit um, question. She's practically. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't want to offend anybody at all, but I first want to say I, it does really concern me the demonizing of animals mm. and, dare, and, yeah. and be. So animals are an essential part. Tim, would you, yeah. of healthy farm life. And, and building um, up the fertility of the soil. Yeah, and if you think that just by eating vegetables uh, that have been grown in monocultures without biodiversity with heavy-duty chemicals and fertilise on them, that you're going to do anything at all to help the planet, 
you're very mistaken. And if you feel, uh, sorry, I, I can feel I've started. <laughs> but, um, but also, you know, I mean, the problems that the kind of demands of veganism, I mean, you know, on nuts, on, um, you know, avocados, on, uh, I mean, the consequences of that massive kind of um, turn up of demand for, for mm. um, is, is really, you know, I mean. Making ingredients fashionable. Well, making ingredients fashionable, but... Um, it has a huge human... The um, consequence, I mean, you know, for, for example, yeah. Chile, which, which is where most of the avocados, uh, Chile, Mexico, and Northern California, Chile has a huge, profoundly um, troubling water crisis due to the growth of avocados. So, like, it's just, it's not, it's not the answer. Mm. For me, really, hand on my heart, I believe the return to regenerative agriculture, biodiversity, and good clean soil mm. is our answer. Mm. Um, no fad is going to get us out of the problem mm. that we're in, you know, sorry. And there, uh, absolutely, I completely agree with you. There are, uh, uh, there are also, I have other, two other concerns. First of all, there is really no question that we have been eating probably much more meat than we need. Absolutely. And, but when we're talking about, yeah, we all, I think, agree at this stage, uh, to, to you know, buy, eat less and eat a better quality meat. And nobody can, under any circumstances, justify or condone uh, the, uh, the, the, way, uh, the way a lot of chickens and pork are, mm -hmm. and pigs are reared, under no circumstances. And it is, hopefully, that will uh, be eliminated. But the other thing that really concerns me, um, there are two things about, uh, that concern me about the, this incredible rise in veganism. One, one is that basically nowadays, remember what I think, I think I said, maybe I didn't say it, but about the, you know, so much of our food having on average 40% of the nutrients that it used mm. to have. Well, in that case, for most people, the reality of shopping for their food is dash, going to the supermarket and so on. So if you take that as maybe we're lucky that it's 50% or whatever, uh, basically, well, then it's, if you're just living on a plant-based diet, it's really hard to get enough nutrients to keep you healthy. Of course, you're going to need vitamin B12 as well, which comes, by the way, from animal sources apart from one rare algae in Asia. So there's also that worry that, and, but, and also, I know we have um, 11 grandchildren actually, and one of our grandchildren, Willow, a lot in her class, she's about 17 or 17, I think, and I've always been numerically challenged, so I can't, I'm very bad at remembering ages and things like that. But anyway, she, um, a, lo a lot of her friends are, of course, it's terribly concerned, as we all are, about uh, climate change and the rest of all of that. And they think the best thing that they can possibly do is to become vegans. And this is, you know, it's so misguided, in my opinion, on many ways, because it's, but they're doing it for the very best possible reasons. Mm. And this is really difficult to, to argue with them. And I think I'm it's so about worried. education, yes, though, isn't it? It's I mean. totally about education. And I was at, I don't know how many of you have heard of the Western A. Price Foundation. It's a, just a, to look it up if you want to. But anyway, this conference uh, I went to last year in the North American con in, in Baltimore, uh, nearly a thousand people at this conference, you know, uh, the, the Western A. Price has a, you know, uh, the optimum, you know, uh, guidelines for uh, optimum nutrition. It's a, the, the sort of a long story. He was a dentist originally. I won't get into that now. But if you remember Western A. Price and the podcast Wise Traditions, it's really worth looking up. But anyway, at that conference with nearly a thousand people at it, between a, a quarter and a third of the people who attended that conference were vegans 
desperately trying to recover their health, to cling on to the Western A. Price Foundation suggestions for optimum nutrition. And it was really, really frightening actually, but also very, very interesting. And it's very militant, as you know, so it's very hard to say I've decided not to be. Mm. And it's not to say for one minute, I think it's really important for us to say this too, that people can, of course, be very healthy on a vegan diet, but you must have access to nourishing, wholesome food and a lot of it. Otherwise, you know, ultimately there'll be health problems apart from anything else, not to speak of you know, if everybody in the world went vegan, the diminishing fertility of the soil to the point would, would, would absolutely affect the planet. Yeah. Sorry, the long, a long answer to your question. <laughs> there we are. Claire Phone here. Um, I was under the impression that um, our soil is so nutrient depleted post-Second World War with Dig for Victory. So how nutrient dense is our, you know, if we had Depends. growing vegetables in our own gardens, I don't know how how good the soil is? Is it good? Is it is some it some soil is fantastic and other soil it depends. This is a big it depends. And one of the the first things to do if you're interested and would like to grow something is to get, find a soil scientist and they're easy enough to find and get them to take a soil sample in your garden. And then the other thing that's important if you're going to grow something is to know what type of soil you have apart from the uh, you know, the fertility of the soil is to know whether you're on acid soil or whether you're on limey soil because that will dictate what you grow. But basically, a, a lot of land and soil that has been very intensively uh, cultivated for, you know, maybe 20, 30 years tends to now, and if it's had a lot of pesticides and herbicides and everything, which, you know, damage the, damage the nutrients in the soil and the, <coughs> mic you know, the microbes and um, all the mycorrhiza, all of that sort of thing, uh, basically that can be very nutrient deficient. And many farmers now are extremely concerned about the diminishing fertility of the soil. And in some places, of course, like in, well, there are examples in, China, in Britain even here too, but in the America, in China particularly as well, the soil is exhausted. Mm. It will no longer, doesn't matter what they put on it, basically, it will no longer <coughs> produce food. So in China, I had a very interesting experience on a slow food, um, uh, at an international slow food conference in China about two years ago, where um, the, uh, Carla Petrini gave an, an, an pa a passioned, very carefully worded opening address saying, we must look after the soil that feeds us and the importance of all of that. Because in China, in so many cases, they have a huge population. They have a proper problem with water. And they basically, they know that they are in a danger of not being able to produce enough food to feed their, their, their population. And then you have anarchy. So, you, you know, they're buying land in... Australia, all sorts of the Africa, etc. But basically, so he, uh, Carl Puccini, the head of Slow Food, gave this speech at the be beginning of this weekend thing. And we were in Chengdu, uh, which is in the Sichuan province, which is sort of like the gastronomic capital of China. <coughs> anyway, by the, and we were, by the end of the weekend, and there were many different speakers, we were taken actually to visit an amazing organic farm up in the highlands, about two hours out of uh, uh, Chengdu is fascinating to drive to the to the Chinese countryside, and they have wonderful soil, very fertile, and you know they. But uh, and so they knew there were lots lots of discussion over the weekend. They knew that business as usual is no longer an option mm. because the land doesn't matter what they put on it, will not produce anymore. So they realise that they have to go back again to actually building up the fertility of the soil. By the end of the weekend. 
uh, there was a closing speech by one, you know, the whatever, and they said that they had decided that they were going to create a thousand eco uh, villages in the province of Chentu. I mean, Carlo Puccini couldn't believe his ear. I mean, it's like mouths hung open uh, because, I mean, you'd, you're delighted to think that, you know, that there would be some change, but basically, I'm sure they had been thinking of it anyway because their backs are to the wall in many cases, but basically for a thousand, but you see in China, you can say to a farmer on Friday, you know, if a farmer's conventional on Friday, you can say to them, you're organic on Monday <laughs> and you'll get on with it. So there, but anyway, that was a big, but that, it was interesting that they realized, so many people said, we know we can't keep going on with business as usual because the soil is getting more and more depleted and so on. So I don't know, was that the answer to that question? I don't know, but anyway. <laughs> but don't be, don't, be, don't be depressed because you're, I don't know what state your, your thing is, but I think it's not, it wouldn't be fair, to, it's not right to say that the land does, is fully depleted after digging for victory. Because land can, you know, if it's looked after and all of that, and if you continue to feed the soil, how do you feed the soil? You feed it by uh, putting, making compost, and, and then when the compost is, it comes to the humus stage where life comes back into it again, uh, then put, you put that onto the soil, that makes the soil more fertile and so on. We also use seaweed, of course, and that also uh, helps. And there are lots of things like even nettle tea, and comfrey tea, all of those things can help. But putting the organic matter, and I'm not talking about organic in the sense we normally use it, I mean anything that will break down back onto the soil makes a huge difference. It'll break down, it'll feed the microrhizomes in the soil and all of that. And then the more, as go back to really where we started, as Lady Eve Balfour, remember the health of the soil, the health of the plant, the health of the animal and the health of the human are all one and indivisible. So we co totally depend on how fertile the soil is in your garden. There we are. Okay. <laughs> Good. I'm sure I speak for everybody that um, I certainly feel incredibly nourished for this talk <laughs> and that was a beautiful uh, full circle. Um, so please join me in thanking Sky, Jordan and Darina. of the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. You can find out more about the Assembly by visiting the Heckfield Place website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Heckfield underscore place and the hashtag Heckfield Place. Thanks for listening. Thank you.